You have a Bible, and I hope you do. I'd love for you to open up to John chapter 11 this morning. We're going to begin by reading the first four verses in this very familiar story, but we're going to learn today uh, that had we never heard this story before, uh, and had we been there watching this story unfold in real time, we might would have expected it or suspected it to go in a completely different direction, and we wouldn't have been wrong or out of touch or off base for thinking that. I want to talk about the tension that arrives when what we expect to happen doesn't happen. John chapter 11, verse number one tells us, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Have you ever been completely surprised or caught off guard by something that happened, or maybe something that didn't happen, uh, that you were so caught off guard, you were so surprised that you just didn't know how to process, and maybe you were a little bit shell-shocked, you're a little bit frozen, uh, a little bit stunned, uh, and maybe you just kind of stared, stared and, and tried to process it all, and, and it took you a while, and, and maybe there's things that you've been through that you still, honestly, you still haven't been able to process it quite thoroughly. This, this could happen uh, to, to be something that you saw right before you in real life. It, it could be something that if you really were invested in a certain series or TV show, right? We've had those moments. You're watching a movie, watching a, a show, you're reading a book, and, and you just did not expect that to be on the next page or in the next scene, right? Not as serious as real life stuff, but still can give us that, that emotion and that sense of, I can't believe it, and I didn't see it coming. Uh, particularly, the kind of surprises I'm talking about are the ones where you expect one thing to happen, but then something completely different happens. You expect one thing, but then another thing happens, and maybe you were pleased by that surprise, or maybe you were not so pleased. Not, about, not at all. Uh, you know, we all have those days where something comes out of left field and completely hijacks our day in, a, in the worst way, but we also have those days where something lifts up our day for good, and, and we just never saw it coming, and it just makes everything so much better uh, out of nowhere. But, but I'm talking about a situation where something you were focusing on, so not something that maybe wasn't on, on your radar, but maybe you were focusing on something or someone, you were investing in something or someone, and you were expecting things to go in a certain direction, and all of a sudden there's just this, this very hard and, and this very difficult to process turn or uh, change in direction, and, and just like when you're driving uh, and, and you're behind the wheel or maybe you're in the passenger seat, and there's this, this moment, this abrupt or jarring movement, uh, that never makes any of us feel good, right? Now, even if you were dodging something that was out of your control, you still kind of feel funny when you have to do that, right? We've all avoided accidents before, and, and, and by the grace of God, we were able to swerve left or right or stop, and, and even though it was, was, was necessary, that abrupt, jarring movement doesn't make us feel good. Like, it takes a while to think, wow, I made it, but that wasn't what I expected. But there's also been those abrupt and jarring movements that we've made where it led to something awful, right? You weren't paying attention, you tried to swerve, and you hit something else in the process. So these are the sort of directions that, 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 that things that we all face in many different scenarios of life 
And I could go in all sorts of directions, kind of coming up with examples, uh, stories that we could tell about ups and downs that we uh, did not face, uh, did not expect to, to face. So I've got a few I want to share with you. Um, I, I like to start lighthearted because y'all know me. I don't want to get you too deep and serious without giving you something to whether laugh about or at least make fun of me about. So I like to be an open book and, and y'all know how I am. So you probably know where, you might can suspect where this is going. If, if you do, God bless you. But um, so in the film and entertainment industry, there's this line of certain, there's this line of thought that certain writers and directors kind of um, have, have in mind that they, they want to be known as people who subvert expectations. So there, there's this idea that a writer really wants to leave a mark on a franchise or a character or a story, and they don't just want to tell the story you would expect. They don't just want to tell you what you already had figured out in your head. They want to make you walk out of the theater or turn off the channel or, or put the book down. They want to make you feel like something just whether it was whether you realize it was a good in the long run and the moment they want to just leave you speechless um and, and again writers authors you know directors they kind of want to be able to do this and, and really pull it off successfully um now you know in the moment it might be very controversial it might be unpleasant to 99 percent of the people that are interested into it but at least it's water cooler talk right can you believe that happened to that person. Um, now, this is what happens, when, you know, sometimes I think writers have a little bit of too much self-importance and they think, you know, it's more about me than the, the thing I'm dealing with and, and the, the franchise I'm dealing with that people really love. So that leads me, and y'all know I have to do this once a year. I don't do it more than once a year because I don't want people to think I'm weird. That leads me to everybody's favorite franchise, Star Wars. So um, I got to glorify God with what I know. So bear with me. Star Wars is one of those franchises that's so big that you, you kind of don't mess with it, right? If somebody calls you and says, hey, I want you to contribute to the new movie or the new show or the new story, you, you kind of have to respect, the, read the room and realize, I don't want to mess with something that's this big, right? I mean, you might not care, but I care, right? So that's what I think. Um, now, there's a moment about 15 minutes into one of the movies from a few years ago that really upset some people. I mean, really, I mean, upset people more than they should have been upset. But again, people are weird. I'm weird. We get upset about stuff. Um, it didn't really bother me because I was, I was willing to read the, watch the whole movie and I got over it. But some people still are not over it. And, you know, they need to get over it. But, you know, I understand why they can't get over things. So just like you can't get over some things from your favorite franchise. But now in the realm of things that actually matter, you know, leaders and people with power do this stuff all the time. People in charge of companies or countries often um, take things in a wrong direction or a direction they know people aren't going to be happy with, but they do it anyway because they can, right? Because they're the one with the microphone or they're the one with the staff. They're the one with the pen. And, and sometimes people just aren't ready for the direction that they take things in. So Star Wars fans are a little bit of a fragile bunch, right? If you know me, you probably would call me that. Um, but, and, and uh, uh, there's this moment, 15 minutes into The Last Jedi from a few years ago, um, where Luke, the, the guy that everybody loves, um, he, he's handed the lightsaber that the first, the movie before it was all about getting it to him. And he takes it and he throws it. And this really upset people because people had been waiting for literally 30 years to see him back on the screen in the star of a movie. Uh, Y'all know the deal. Star Wars came, back in the, came out in the 70s, 83, Return of the Jedi. Luke is the hero. He rides off into the galaxy, you know, going to be the best Jedi that's ever been. Uh, they made some prequels. They finally come back in the, in the mid-2000s or the, in 2012 and say, hey, we're going to make some new movies. Um, we're going to bring back the original gang. So then it was bad enough that they they killed off Harrison Ford's character in Seven, never got to be reunited with Luke. But then, 
you wait the entire, entire movie of Seven to see Luke. He doesn't speak. The next movie starts off, and he gets the lightsaber, and he throws it. And instead of being the hero that you'd always dreamed he would be and always wanted him to be, he's a really unpleasant, grouchy, bitter old man that doesn't want anybody to be near him. Now, if you read the, watch the whole movie, he comes around in the end, but nobody really was happy. And if you were happy with it, then, then you're open-minded, so good for you. But a lot of people weren't really happy with how that went, especially the people that were fans back in the old days. So this is what I mean when I ask you the question, have you ever experienced something that was jarring and abrupt where things went in a different direction than you expected? Nobody went into that movie thinking that it was going to be about a grouchy, grumpy old man uh, that, that they used to think was a hero, right? And nothing wrong with old, grouchy, grumpy old people, right? You should be happy. But nobody went to that movie to watch him be kind of a, a mean person, right? You went there to see him be the guy you always dreamed he would be. And again, he came around in the end, but, but wasn't how anybody wanted it to be. And, and again, that's fiction, so we can get over that. But nobody really likes their expectations being subverted, do they? You know how I learned this um, as a, a twenty, as a pastor in my twenty-somethings, uh, and still in, in my early thirties. Um, I learned that as a young pastor who desires to lead people biblically, but also often takes some fresh and maybe different approaches. That doesn't always land with people who've been around a little bit longer than me, twice as long, three times as long. And, and, it, and it requires some grace on both ends to, to make sure that everybody gets along through the process. So I learned early and often that you can be right and what you want to do can be, can be exactly how it should be done. But some people are just never going to be really happy about change or they're never going to be really happy about things going the way they didn't expect them to go right? Especially when they didn't come up with the ideas themselves. That's just kind of how we are. Um, this isn't to argue who's right in that situation. The point is nobody likes having their expectations subverted or their ideal plans challenged or changed. But we've all faced moments like this before where there wasn't really anything we could do about it other than figure out how to process what we just watched happen in front of us. And there was sometimes where there's sometimes where we can come to the conclusion that we we can't process it, that we aren't going to be able to sort through it, that we're not going to be able to figure out what to do with this for a long time. We've all watched movies, we've all read books where the ball, uh, where the whole thing that gets them plot rolling, somebody's birthday party, somebody's big moment in their life, all of a sudden just something terrible pops off and, and everything gets ruined. Uh, but it, that's not just in the movies, is it? It's not just in the books, is it? Um, we've all been at a point in our life where at a crossroads where we think things are finally going to take off for us. Things are going to go exactly the way we always dream for them to go. But then something completely off the wall happens. And it sends our stories in a whole other direction. Now, sometimes this can be in a good way, and, and we're thinking, wow, I, I never expected to come into this opportunity or come into this money or come into this, this, this great position. Uh, but most of the time, these unexpected twists are the bad kind, right? They're the tragic or the frustrating or the devastating kinds. I, I don't think there's a story that features a more jarring or abrupt or devastating twist than the one that we've opened to today in John 11. Now, now, let me be very clear about this story. There's no way that anyone would ever make this story up because on the surface, it paints God in a light that nobody is comfortable with at first. It requires some heavy, deep conversations to figure out what he's up to and where he's at during the crucial points of the story. 
It's a true story that subverts expectations so much that it throws the leader for a, root, a reader for a loop in a way that it's totally normal for any of us to ask some questions about what was God thinking or what was God up to? What in the world is going on? And maybe as you read this story for the first time, or if you would have been there and watched it happen all in live, real time, you would have probably thought, God, where were you when you were needed the most? And maybe you've had a story in your life, and maybe you've had a season of your life, and maybe you are in one right now, or maybe you still haven't gotten over what happened before. And maybe the question you have for God is, God, where were you? Where were you? When I needed you the most. But, but then when you read the story closer and you, and you read between the lines, you get the answer as to where God was. And it's not satisfactory at all. Nobody's happy with the answer at first. It doesn't make anyone feel better. And it leads to other questions. God, how could you? God, why did you? Or maybe the better questions are, God, how couldn't you? Why didn't you? As you read the story, I know it's impossible because we know what happens. We've heard this story. We've sang about this story all our lives. But I want you to at least try, and if you've never heard it before, hey, we're, you're, you're, you're an advantage. But if you've heard this a hundred times like I have, I want you to at least try to imagine. How, how would you imagine this story to proceed knowing what you know about Jesus and how he responds to similar needs if you didn't already know how things go down? So I want to take it a verse at a time. And let's just, let's just go with the premise in verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and Martha. So right out the gate, we are introduced to a sick person, and we get a name, and a lot of times we don't even get names for these people in the gospel, so that's already a, a, a sign that this person's important or this person means something to somebody. This person is special. So right out the gate, we get a story about a man who is sick, and he has some important sisters who we've heard about before. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I read a verse like this, I kind of already know what's going to happen if I've read the Gospels a few times. Because there are 36 individual episodes, just like this one, that result in Jesus walking into the story and healing the child, the person, whoever, and giving them back to full strength. Almost all of them involve verses like this. Here's someone with an incurable ailment. Here's someone disabled. Here's someone with a disease. It's their mom. It's their son. It's their daughter. It's their, it's their friend. It's just somebody that's trying to get some help. He's been there for 38 years. We've read those stories. Here comes Jesus. He heals the person, and people are stunned and amazed, and there's hardly any small talk because Jesus came with a plan, and he took care of it in a minute. And y'all know this, you've read your Bibles, we read this all over the Gospels. Luke 4 says, on one occasion when the sun was setting, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus and he laid his hands on every one of them. Every one of them. And he healed them. And there's so many stories like this in the Gospels. Luke 6, verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. What's the word? All. So, I mean, if I've read the stories, that, like you've read the stories, I mean, okay, a guy's sick. He has some, he's an important person. We know his name. We know his family. We know what's going to happen to this guy, right? Because Jesus never withholds the miracle when it's needed according to the Gospels. He didn't just do this for Jews. On one occasion, he crossed over to a foreign country 
When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when he met, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around all that region and brought to him all who were sick. So when you recognize Jesus for who he is and you have a need, just bring the need to him. And the story goes, they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were healed. I mean, again, we know what happens when Jesus comes into the town and he's recognized as being the healer that we know him to be. People get the answer. People get the solution. People get the healing. Matthew summarizes Jesus' behavior like this. This is such a big statement to make, but it was true. He went through all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So not just some but every, every, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. So why did he heal them? Because he cared for them. He had compassion for them. And they didn't have the medicine we had. They didn't have the help that we had. They had no means of getting better. They were just going to die. And the life expectancy was so short. And Jesus showed up and all of a sudden there's a big boost on the, on the, on the trajectory of time because he was literally performing miracle after miracle after miracle. And Everybody knew when Jesus gets called on, when Jesus comes into the story. I mean, you don't even got to have him in the room. You can just let him know and he'll send a prayer across the universe and he'll take care of it. So clearly we know that Jesus, when Jesus encounters a sick person, we know what he does, right? So why would this story go any differently? In fact, we totally should expect John 11 to go a very specific way. And then we get some more details that makes it even more obvious what should happen. Verse 2. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So this is the Mary who poured that expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus to anoint him for his death and resurrection. So clearly, she's a believer. She's a devoted believer. She's a, a sacrificial believer. And, and then we get this, this really awesome line that, isn't other, that we never read about, it in a, about any other character, any other person. And they send the word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. So you're a really good friend. Now, we don't know that Jesus had any really good friends. I mean, he had good followers, Peter, James, and John. They were close, but we don't ever read that, that, that they, they that w- them talked about in this way. And, you know, John's the disciple that Jesus loved, but John's the one writing the story. So, of course, he would say that. But, but, but Mary and Martha say, hey, Jesus, you're a really good friend. The, the, the person that you hang out with that you don't always talk about ministry and you don't always talk about business with, the guy that you'll just sit around and just talk about life with, the friend that you can always rely on, the friend that's always there for you, the house that you always come to whenever you're just needing some time off, Lazarus, your buddy, he's sick. He's not just kind of sick. He's dying. But we're not worried because Jesus, we know what you do. We've seen the, we've seen the, the movies. We've watched the, the shows. We've read the books. We know what you do, Jesus. When you call on Jesus, I mean, hey, nothing's going to stand in his way. He healed random strangers. He healed Gentiles. So, of course, he's going to heal his friend. And we really don't have another example in the Gospels of someone being referred to as a friend of Jesus. So, come on. We know what's going to happen, don't we? You know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to walk in the room and he's going to make it all better. Now, in verse 4, we get this. We get these words of Jesus that make it even more obvious. I mean, hey, this isn't going to be unto death. This is for the glory of God. So Jesus is just saying what we all expect him to say. Of course, 
this isn't going to kill Lazarus. Of course it's going to be for God's glory because you're Jesus. So Jesus says to Lazarus and says to his family, he sends him a postcard. He sends him a letter. Y'all don't worry. God's got this. And I know that God's got this because I've got this. But apparently, Lazarus came down with something really bad really quickly. But the people around him had very, very little hope apart from Jesus intervening. But when they heard Jesus say this, they were like, why should we worry? Jesus is going to do what Jesus always does, right? And then John, who's writing the story, repeats himself in verse 5. It sounds like encouraging information at first, but then it makes you kind of wonder, is he trying to convince us something based on what he knows is about to happen? Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and he loved her sister, and he loved Lazarus. I mean, okay, John, and why are you telling us that? We already heard that he loved them. But John feels like he needs to kind of editorialize. And John says, you know what? I, I think I need to make sure the reader knows that Jesus really likes these people. I mean, he loves them. They're friends of his. They're not just followers. They're not just donators. They're not just supporters. They're friends. And that's rare when it comes to Jesus in his life. And then we get the reason why John tells us that. Because verse, verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick... He stayed two more days in the place where he was. So John tells us that, hey, he loved these guys because John knows that we're not going to really understand why verse 6 is there. Because John's going to think, well, okay, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. He's the healer. He's going to go. But John says, now, let me tell you, he loved them, but he didn't go and help them immediately. I know that's going to make you ask some questions, but I just want you to know, he loves Lazarus. But he also wasn't in a hurry to go to Lazarus. And, and, and that's where we kind of step up and say, well, well, Jesus doesn't have to be in the room to heal somebody. I mean, he just sent the word to the centurion, right? To, to the guy, Jairus, about his daughter. He just sent the word and the, and the girl got up, right? There was no, there's no barriers between prayer. There's no reason why he's got to be in the room or lay his hands on the person. He could just call it into existence. But it seems like odd information that Jesus hears about a friend in need. He does, intentionally doesn't go to help him. Something just doesn't seem right. And then we get some more information, verse 7 through 10. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So on the third day, third day from hearing about Lazarus being sick, he said, hey, let's go to Judea. But the disciples, they're not really too enthused about it, and I'll explain why. The disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and us. Are you going there again? Are we going there again? And Jesus said, are, not, there are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So it appears that Jesus' disciples, maybe they don't know that he's sick. Maybe they don't know the extent of his being sick. Or, or, or that, that, that they don't know that he's gravely ill. Because surely they would have said, hey, let's go. We've got to help Lazarus. But since Jesus didn't say let's go immediately and they stay two days, they think, you know what, it's probably a good thing because last time we were there, they tried to stone us. Read chapter 10. They tried to stone us because Jesus said he was God and that didn't make them happy. That made them very angry, very upset. So they didn't want to go back because they thought, hey, they're going to kill you and they're really going to kill us too and we don't want to die. He assures them, hey, y'all have nothing to be afraid of because I'm here to light the way. And of course, if you're with Jesus, you're going to be okay. But Jesus' words there are important when we hear the rest of the story. 
verse 11 and 12. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. (laughs) But then they say, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Hey, Jesus, remember they tried to kill you. We really don't need to be in a hurry. I mean, he underplays Lazarus' problem, and they're thinking if he's just asleep, what's the rush? And then Jesus gets very plain with them. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking, talking about him taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus said it plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad, I mean, this is really hard to hear. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas speaks for them, let us go that we may die with him. Because they're going to stone us, and he's dead, and we're going to die, you're going to die, so this is not going to end well for any of us. Now, if this doesn't make sense to you, believe me, it made no sense to the disciples. Because while they were afraid to go back, it just didn't make sense as to why Jesus delayed his response. He had never done that before. And now all of a sudden, especially after he says things like, I'm glad this happened, which makes it sound like Jesus was actually orchestrating all of this, it made them very uncomfortable. It makes us very uncomfortable. It, no, there's no reason why it shouldn't make us uncomfortable because we just don't really, is, is God really like this? I'm glad that we weren't there. Does that mean you knew he was going to die and you just let him die? I don't have to make that any more real to any of you, do I? We know that, 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 that's kind of bad. So back to him telling them that not to worry as long as they were with him. Suddenly they started thinking, can we really trust you, Jesus? Can we really trust you? And come on, has this story went the way any of us expected it to go? Absolutely not. But there's a, there's a verse that really bothers me in this, in this passage as a reader. I understand it, but, but, but it bothers me. And I think, I'm, I bet it might bother you. Verse 15, he says, I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. I mean, weren't they already believers? What, what does this mean? Hey, Jesus, we already believe in you. Nobody else, they don't, but we do. We're followers. We're willing to do anything for you. What do you mean? We gotta, I mean, do we not believe enough? Are our beliefs not right or are they off base? I mean, what do you mean that you're glad that you weren't there to heal a guy so we could suffer through all this and worry about all this? And and, and what's wrong with our faith? Now, that makes you a little bit confused. Listen, it made them very confused. Now, we'll answer that in a minute, but I want to go ahead and read the next stage of the story. So when Jesus came and he found that that, that he had already been in the tomb for four days, so Lazarus died literally four days ago. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, because I bet they were upset, right? Of course they were. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house because Mary didn't want to see him, but Martha needed to see him. You know what I mean? Because some of you are confrontational people, some of you are not confrontational people. Both of them had a word for Jesus, but one of them didn't really want to get into the problem or didn't want to stir it up. One of them was angry. One of them was angry enough to go talk to him. You you got to get what I'm saying? One of them was upset and hurt. The other was upset and hurt and mad. I don't blame her. I bet you would be too. 
Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know how she can say that so definitively? Because we read about 36 different people getting healed, and we read about dozens and dozens of other people getting healed. So she knew, hey, if he had just been there. I mean, there's people that got healed just for touching his garment. I mean, come on. Just bring it by and let it just, you know, just bring it by and let him touch him. I mean, that's how it works. I mean, we don't even need you to have to want to be here, Jesus. Just come by for our sake. We know what you can do. You love Lazarus. This isn't just a stranger. Remember that woman that was in the crowd and you didn't even know who she was? And you said, hey, I think somebody's touched my garment because I think somebody's been healed. I mean, did you not even know it? Of course, he knew it. But I mean, that makes us think that Jesus didn't have to always be intentional about it because he was just this powerful God in a body, right? Beyond what we can imagine or comprehend. But, but Mar- Martha and Mary knew. They knew. But she isn't so angry that she's lost hope. Verse 22, look. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So, so Martha had some, had some self-reflection, right? She's like, I gotta say this, but I want you to, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be sacrilegious. I don't wanna be heretical here. I'm not trying to say I'm angry at you. I'm upset. I don't understand. But ultimately, I'm gonna give you a little bit of room to make this make sense. Can you imagine the grief and the pain that they were facing as they came face to face with the man who they knew? They knew he could have, he could have, he could have healed Lazarus. But he didn't. What's the reason? So that people who already believed in him would believe more? That makes no sense. Here's what I know. A lot of us sometimes think we have God figured out so much that we've already got our stories written down and our plans laid out, don't we? But isn't it true that we can get ahead of God in the story that he's writing? Even isn't it true that we can pick up God's pen sometimes? And do and we do this, we do this because it's so easy. And again, I'm not being critical. This is just real. This is how we are. We, 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 it's so easy to conflate and confuse God's goodness with predictability and comfort. Right? It's so easy. Well, God is good. So that means that things are going to be predictable and things are going to be easy. May not say God is good, but sometimes predictability and comfort will cause us to settle for less than his goodness. We just don't realize it. Some version of good that's not God's goodness, but it's our goodness that's less than his. Of course, what we think is good is good. It, it feels good, right? But the question is, is our good the same as God's good? Is our good the same as God's best? And the answer to that is no. And you, you know what it means? You know what it means when Jesus says, this all happened so you would believe, even though we assume they already believed? It means that they and many of us only believe in God when it's convenient for how we already see the world. And it, be- it means that we often believe in God's plans when we agree with God's plans. It means that we believe when things make sense. But we doubt when it comes to things that don't make 
sense. And Jesus is far more interested in our trust when it comes to the latter than the former because we really don't need God when we have everything figured out. You know what Jesus was demonstrating in the story? That God is not an insurance policy. That God is not just there to bail us out of uncomfortable situations. If that's what we've settled for when it comes to knowing God and believing in God, we're missing out on a real relationship with God. So Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, oh yeah, Jesus, I've been to Sunday school. I know, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. That's such a long way from now. I know he's going to come back one day, but, but that doesn't make this any easier. But, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection, which is a whole new category. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never truly and actually die. And then Jesus asked this question that's really just impossible to answer because this is just a word, this is a whole higher level of thought. Do you believe this, Martha? I want, to, I want you to underline and I want you to highlight a, a couple of words that might be different in your translation, but in mine, they're in verse 25. Though he may die. He who believed in me, though he may die. Don't you see that's an important qualifier to get the whole blessing of the story? Not he who believed in me will not have to face this. But he who believes in me, though he or she will indeed face things like this. Do you see what I'm getting at? Though he or she may die. You know what Jesus is saying right here? And this is such a big deal. I hope, you can, I hope we can just get a little bit of this. This is a promise of resurrection that all of us can experience. But our capacity for resurrection... Our capacity for being raised up by God is tied to our tenacity, our, our determination, our persistence, our capacity for the resurrection life of God is tied to our tenacity and the unknowns and uncertainties of this life. As in, we cannot give up when we don't understand. We cannot give up when we don't know. We cannot give up when things go a different direction because in the midst of what we're going through, that's where we can take hold of this resurrection life. But unless we go through that, we'll never experience it. And I'll go as far as to say this. Unless we face these sorts of unknowns, we won't ever have the proper perspective or incentive to look for God. And I know what we say, oh, whoa, 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 Jesus. No, no, no. I, I always look for God. But Jesus knows our tendencies better than we know our own tendencies, doesn't he? And that's exactly why he set this story up so that we might take on a greater kind of faith. This story has so many twists and turns, so many unexpected changes as we would expect. The reality is that sometimes God is going to subvert our expectations so that our adoration and our dedication are greater, so that our faith is stronger and bolder. You know what this story proves? That God is not writing our stories to make us comfortable. 
but to make us faithful to him and to make us dependent on him. And the unknowns we face are not obstacles from the enemy, but they are objects that God uses to direct us to him. God is not interested in giving us smooth, comfortable, predictable lives. He is definitely not promising as much. Wherever God's plans take us, there is peace and there is joy and there is a rich relationship with him and the goodness of him. But that doesn't mean that things are going to go as we expect to get there. But that also doesn't mean we have a reason to worry or be afraid. In fact, it could be the story that this story is really about revealing to us that the things that we would never write into our stories, the things that we would write out of our stories if we could, they are written into our stories so that, so that we might be set up to look up. That God writes these kind of chapters into our stories, that God doesn't respond the way we expect him to respond, that God doesn't do what we expect him to do, that God doesn't prevent this from us or God doesn't take us away from that or God doesn't take that away from us that God literally leads us by the hand into a valley that we would have never went into ourselves so that we might be set up to look up to him we just read a story where Jesus literally lets a man die a friend of his that he could have healed so that those around him learn a powerful lesson that we might learn and come to know the resurrection power and life of Jesus. We'll only ever know Jesus and the power of his resurrection if we confront and embrace the unknowns and uncertainties, specifically the letdowns of this life. Though he may die, yet he shall live. Listen, I don't wish any bad days on any of you. The reality is that more often than not, we face some bad days, don't we? We face some bad moments in the day, don't we? Everything goes sideways and off script. Maybe a few times in your life, there are these devastating valleys where you lose someone or something happens to you or you go through a struggle that you could have never imagined and it's so great that you don't know how you're going to deal with it. Jesus wants you to know that these things that seem to inhibit our life are actually given to us to improve us, as in increase our faith and improve our relationship with God. The question that God is asking us today is what verse 26 asks the reader. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because most of us don't. You believe in God, but do you believe in God's plans? Do you believe that he is leading you through this life, even using or intending your letdown so that he can lift you up? The message of this story, the invitation from this story is that we would lean into, lean into the letdown so that we may be lifted up and filled with resurrection life. There's a brand of life, there's an experience with God that you will never know if you wring your hands and bemoan every bad day, every hardship, every struggle. The solution isn't to go into a state of mourning until you feel better. It's not to get bitter or whine until a solution's provided. The invitation from God is that every single time that we lean in, lean into the tears, lean into the pain, lean into the frustration, lean into the confusion, lean into what is unknown so that God might lift you up. Because though you die, as in you got to go through that valley, 
yet you shall live. Come on, this is the gospel, isn't it? Regardless of what you face in this life, isn't the gospel that you follow Jesus and that you literally die to yourself? That you say no, that you lay down your wills, and and that's a struggle to do, isn't it? That's a hard thing to do. It's not as great as losing somebody, but when you have to say to yourself no and yes to God, that's hard. That's the gospel. Just after this episode, over in John 12, and we'll close with this passage. Just after this episode, over in John 12, some Greeks want to meet Jesus and and Philip brings them to Jesus uh, and and Philip and Andrew set this whole meeting up and Jesus is gonna speak to them and gonna give them the invitation and this is such a powerful uh, illustration of the gospel over in 12, verse 23 through 26. Jesus answered and said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, that where I am, there my servant will be also. As in the path I'm going down, you must follow me. If anyone serves me and follows me, my Father will honor him. Whether you ever face tragedy or hardships at all, every single one of us has to deal with the invitation that Jesus gives to us to lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow him over every other plan. We don't, we don't like that invitation because it sounds unpredictable. It sounds uncertain because we've lived in this American version for the last hundred years where we come to church, it's comfortable, it's convenient. We say a prayer, we go down and we give a little money and we watch 1% of the rest of the Christians do all the risky stuff. Listen, that's not Christianity. If your Jesus story is just a series of religious rituals, can I tell you, it's much better than that. It's much more real than that. Following Jesus means loss. Whether the world comes against us or we have to say no to ourselves, laying down our dreams or just struggling against a fallen world, following Jesus will involve loss, but it's an opportunity more than anything to know God in a rich and real way, to know him in resurrection power. You want resurrection power? You want a real relationship with Jesus? Lean into the letdowns that this world otherwise says, oh, you should avoid. Lean into the hardships and the burdens. Lean into what God lays on your shoulders. Lean into the choices you've got to make that might cost you. Lean in because that is where you find life. I don't know what burden you're bearing today. I don't know what heavy weight you're bearing. And I'm sure for some of you, it's unimaginable for me to even process It might be similar to what Martha and Mary were facing. But Jesus looked at them and said, listen, though he died, this is gonna mean life for him. And he says to them as they are processing all this, though you had to lose something, though you had to feel pain and a burden, this is so that God might draw something greater out of you. And though you as a Christian have to lay down something, there is a greater prize that you can fix your eyes on. And that's what Jesus did. He said, hey, now is my soul troubled? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But no, this is the purpose for which I came. He says, I will glorify God because that is why I came and that's where true life is found. Listen, that's what Jesus did. He paved the way for glory. 
the everlasting joy and peace that we'll discover over the next couple of weeks through the Easter season. The secret to finding that life is losing this life and finding something much greater. So as you face letdowns, as you feel like following Jesus might cost you in some way, lean into it. As you face hardships and struggles and suffering, lean into it. Nobody likes it. Nobody rejoices. But God says, lean into it and realize that I am up to something. Though part of you loses or though part of you suffers, though you may die, you can come to life, resurrection life. Don't take my word for it. Jesus said, though he dies, he will live. And though you may suffer, though you may lose, though you may let go, though you may be let down, there is an opportunity to be lifted up. You know, I think God is calling out over all of us today who are in graves that we didn't even realize it. We're in the grave of sin, the grave of fear, the grave of sorrow, the grave of self. And just like he said, Lazarus, come out, he's saying to us, come out, come alive. Uh, his plans are better. His plans are good. They're not our plans. They're better than our plans. So we've got to lay our lives down at the foot of Jesus and let God write our story so that we can guarantee that the places that he wants to take us in life, that we are on board and open to. It's like the Apostle Paul said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may take hold of this resurrection life that he promised me. By any means? Would you say those words to God? God, I want to experience resurrection life by whatever means required. I'm going to lean in to laying my life down. I'm going to lean in to the letting down. I'm not going to get bitter. I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to let lose my faith. I'm going to lean in because I feel like God's wanting to build my faith up because this is the gospel to lay our life down, to take up something much greater. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Lord, for this challenging story. A challenging story that we would have never written this way, but it happened this way. It happened so that we might take hold of a greater faith, so that our faith might be stronger and bolder and better and bigger. Lord, the only response we can give you is just to worship you for who you are because we trust you. We believe that you are in control. We believe that you're good. But Lord, we want to confess that we often get confused and we often get concerned and we often don't always sign up for what we don't understand and what we don't know. But we're going to believe that even though we may lose, even though we may die, there is resurrection life we can take hold of if we keep our eyes on Jesus and trust him and his plans. We ask this in his name. Amen.